Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Jason Borbara-Sheen, manager of the elite-rated 91 Global Income Opportunities Fund. Jason, thank you for joining us once again. Thanks, Chris. Nice to, nice to see you today. And you. Um, let's start, obviously, name of the fund. Let's start with the world of income, which has changed quite considerably in the in the past few months. Could you maybe talk us through what's happening in, in sort of the two biggest asset classes that you, you invest in, equities and bonds, and what's changed and, and the opportunity set and the dangers? Maybe just give us a, a once over on that. Sure. Okay. So we think that in any time frame, meaningful time frame, three factors drive both bond and equity markets. So that's the mix of growth and inflation and the way that policy from a central bank or fiscal perspective is reacting to that. So currently what we've seen is inflation remain higher and more persistent. As a reaction to that, policy has been tightening. So central banks have been either increasing interest rates, reducing balance sheets, or a mixture of the two. And as a consequence of that, there are further doubts about growth. And unfortunately, for both bonds and equities, that's been a very toxic mix. It meant that yield have moved up across asset classes, which at the sort of first inspection might sound good, but obviously it means capital values have come down on the other side of that. And that's been true both in equities and, and bonds, as I said. So some of the numbers are, are quite eye-watering. Um, treasuries this year, U- US government bonds down 15%. Um, lower rated credits as a consequence of that, down nearly 20. Then taking us onto the equity space, global equities down 25%. Um, and if we hone in on the UK, it's a sort of interesting mix, really. Um, so for most UK investors, they've had a big dampening effect coming from the massive depreciation of sterling, which is down 20% against the dollar year to date. And that's meant that a lot of that loss that you would have witnessed in international equity markets, where you, for example, based in the US, has been dampened. But I think that's something that investors shouldn't rely on too much. So when you see global equities off 25%, but the sterling is depreciated by 20 then naturally you're only off in a sort of single digits. Um, but gilts are off nearly a third uh, of their value this year, so 28% negative total return. And the FTSE has, I think, benefited from that mix of uh, sterling depreciation and, and international earnings. So it's down around 6%. Um, but that's left us from an income perspective in a pretty interesting space. So yields on global equities have gone up to about 2.5%. Um, on high dividend equity indices, now they're about 4.5%, so some of the highest figures we've seen in a long time. And that's the same also of uh, government bond markets. So you're getting today on the US Treasuries uh, over 4% and a similar amount in the UK. I mean, it's quite a, a unique time. I mean, some of, the, some of the areas in the market that people perhaps thought wouldn't fall as much as they have actually have fallen. Um, could you maybe just go into a bit more in terms of the actual changes you've made in the portfolio to sort of counteract the environment we're in and perhaps tap into some of the opportunities as well? Sure. So pretty big changes for us over the last 18 months, I would say. Net equity has gone from a peak in 2021 of 60% to today's uh, 30 um, Actually, over the last few days, that's been increasing. So we've gone up to closer to 35 uh, net, net equity exposure. Uh, that's been a, a sort of mixture of reducing down um, physical companies where we thought they'd become too expensive, but also using outright hedges. So we use derivatives to take exposure down. I think they're also, we've got to say, um, you know, we've been far from perfect. We have to say when we've got things wrong. And I think one of the things we got wrong uh, this year in particular was owning more dividend growth orientated names. So we focus on income equity at the core of the fund, um, but we also like those companies that can in- increase their dividend through time. And I think we had uh, underestimated the extent to which those valuations on some of those companies have become stretched. So part of the changes were selling out of those companies earlier in the year 
Uh, but unfortunately, we'd, we'd seen some of the hits on performance from that. Elsewhere in the bond space, duration, which is our measure of sensitivity to interest rates. So one year of duration means if interest rates go up by 100 basis points, you lose 1% of capital in the fund. So that had come right down to less than one year uh, earlier in the year. But given we've seen that big move in a lot of bond markets, that's actually increased now uh, to about two and a half years. So interest rate sensitivity has picked up a little bit. And then finally, on the currency side, we hedge all our international exposure. So we don't benefit from big sterling depreciation. We also then don't get hurt by its significant moves to the upside, which it feels like it's been a long time since it's occurred, but it, it does in the past. And just 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 quickly for, for listeners on the currency side, I mean, has, has this year been a timely reminder of the importance of currency in the investing world? I think it's it's been beneficial if you have not hedged your sterling exposure. But I think you have to then look at it from the perspective of, well, what are the magnitude of moves that could occur? So yes, you've benefited if you decided not to hedge, um, or you've benefited if you didn't really think about it and you just didn't hedge. But it should be a reminder that actually if things move against you, that could be really quite painful. So we are only active in our exposure. Um, so we have had long dollar exposure, which has helped performance, but we don't have a, uh, we, we start from the point of being completely hedged and it's only active currencies on top of that. So I think that will be important going forward. Um, let, let's stay with currencies. I mean, I've noticed you've got a reasonable amount in emerging market local currency debt bonds from Mexico and Indonesia are sort of among the top 10 bond holdings, for example. Could you tell us about your sort of favourite local currency over dollar denominated debt even and, and why these countries in particular are attractive? Yeah. So, I mean, let's start, start off with the asset class and its behaviour. So, emerging market countries issuing debt in the same way as developed market uh, governments do. The notable thing about that is typically it either comes in a dollar format, i.e. they're issuing in uh, currencies or uh, and specifically the dollar, they themselves don't print. So they're you know, denominated in their local currencies, um, but they're, they're issuing debt in dollars. The alternative is that they actually issue it in their own currency. Now, the reason we like that sort of bond is that we buy their local currency denominated bonds and we hedge them back to the pound in this fund. And then you get a difference in behavior. So dollar denominated EM debt tends to trade a lot like equities. Mm -hmm. EM local currency debts can do if you buy it in its traditional format where you're taking the fluctuations in the local currency of, the, uh, of that um, issuing government. But actually, if you then hedge that currency risk out as we do, then you get a very differentiated performance profile. It actually behaves a lot more like um, a high-quality developed market bond. So one of the things that we do, for example, South African bonds, which mature in uh, 2030, so fairly short maturity bonds, they yield 11%. Um, we think that they potentially have capital upside as well as that income story coming through because they were earlier to raise rates. Uh, a lot of these emerging market countries were active in 2021, whereas developed market central banks only started raising rates this year. So inflation can actually start coming down earlier there, and you can actually see rate cuts come through. And the benefit of buying that local currency bond and hedging ourselves is, yes, there is a cost to hedging. cost is about 3%, but if we can earn then a total return of 8% from that bond, that to us feels pretty attractive over the next few years. So it's, it's a differentiated approach to managing bond exposures, I think. And just turning back to equities, are there, are there a couple of sort of holdings that you're particularly sort of bullish on at the moment in the portfolio? I think the core to our process is we're looking for three characteristics. So we're looking for a dividend yield. It doesn't need to be the highest, but it does need to be above average. So it's got to be above that 2.5% that I mentioned earlier on equity. We want that to be reliable. So we're looking for a consistency of dividend. And that, in the case of equities, it's about the profitability of the company. It's how leveraged it is. 
how historically it's been able to manage dividend payments, particularly in times of stress. And then we're testing the valuation case. So the core of the portfolio, I think, is about owning companies which aren't too expensive, have reliable, reliable dividends. Example of that, I'd say, is Johnson & Johnson, not the highest yielder in the world, you know, 2.6 or 2.7%, but 60 consecutive years of dividend increases, which gives us a lot of faith in the resilience of the company if we see tougher times ahead economically. That doesn't mean we only own these very, very stable names. We can own other less consistent dividend payers if there's enough in the valuation that makes us think that the total return on the stock, as well as the income, is going to be compelling. So an example of that is probably the likes of Daimler uh, Truck company. Um, so not a traditional sort of dividend uh, payer necessarily, but has really, we think, changed its business model. So they're much more conservative with the, the way they manage their order book, um, as opposed to before, where there was big fluctuations with demand. This has been a much more conservative approach, and they've got a commitment towards paying out the dividend. And that, that sort of change in behavior means we're, we're compelled to have a smaller weight in that sort of name relative to a Johnson & Johnson, but still take some exposure to it nonetheless. Okay. Um, just a couple of quick, quick questions. Um, firstly, are you, you, you talked about sort of the fixed income side of things. Are you in the short duration camp? Are you thinking rates won't get to sort of 5 6% in the UK? What, what's your, your sort of view on that? So we've increased duration from the very low point of the year, which is less than one year of duration in total exposure. We've actually gone up to about two and a half. And um, that to us is sort of more of where we would think on average we would be. So I think we're uh, through the worst, maybe from a, a capital loss perspective on government bond markets, but not yet facing big upside. I think in order to get conviction on that, um, then this is true of all development government bonds, we need to see growth data fall off. So whilst growth data is not compelling at the moment, it certainly isn't uh, recessionary, at least in the US yet. As we, we see that coming through, I think that's when the case of government bonds stacks up a bit more. The UK is a slightly idiosyncratic case currently. I think what we need there, because the valuation in the bond market is, is a tick for me on, on gilts, but we need to see more fundamentally orthodoxy come through on the fiscal side and on the central bank side. And there are hints that we're getting towards that. I think we just need confirmation of that, and then we'd be more compelled to add that. I mean, let's retire all in at the end, then maybe just give us your, your outlook for, for income investing over the next 12 to 18 months. Are, are we in a sort of transitory period? Is it favourable? Are you sort of wary? Maybe just talk about that. I mean, is it just a case of things are getting harder? I think we are wary. It's fair to describe us in that sense. So our net equity is towards the low end of its range. Our duration is still low, but has come off the lows uh, the, or the very lowest. And, and currency exposure is small, but we are um, modestly long the dollar. And that all is because we think that that mix of growth, inflation and policy isn't improving sufficiently, that despite the fact we've seen some correction valuations, it's not outright compelling. Let, let's focus for a moment strictly on income investing. In a long-term sense, it works very well, because if you look across asset classes, income explains the majority of total returns. And so we think investors who tend to focus on capital gains um, miss the opportunity that comes from income. So instead of saying, I'm going to buy a share today for £10 and sell it in 10 years' time for 20 we're saying, well, let's buy one for £10 today and see if we can get a pound of income per year over the next 10. So that's, that's our focus in the long term. I think relatively, then it's quite compelling today because income has seen yields rise. You've seen uh, high dividend yield indices now offer four and a half percent dividends. You've got government bonds offering four percent. So that does look better than what we see on a lot of sort of growth type companies. But in absolute terms, do we think that there are uh, hard times ahead? I would say yes, because that potential for recession in order to tame uh, inflation is high. 
And so I think we need to go through that, take some further pain, but ultimately then that, that makes the outlook pretty compelling for us. Jason, once again, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. And if you'd like to learn more about the 91 Global Income Opportunities Fund, please visit fundcalibre.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 